0: What's up everyone? Welcome to another episode of Total Health 2020. In this week's episode, we're going to be talking all about the coronavirus vaccine. Hope you guys enjoy this episode. Thank you all so much for tuning in to another episode. So, in this episode, I wanted to talk all about the new COVID-19 vaccine and kind of give an update on where things are. There's three main vaccines that I'll be talking about today the Pfizer-slash-BioNTech vaccine, the Moderna vaccine, and the AstraZeneca-slash-Oxford vaccine. There are some other vaccines in development, like the Novavax, the Johnson & Johnson, and other ones. Um, And even other countries are actually creating their own vaccine, like Russia is creating the Sputnik V. China has its own vaccines in development as well. But in the U.S., the main vaccines that we're looking at are the Pfizer, Moderna, and the AstraZeneca And these three vaccines are really, really important. And the U.S. has actually purchased enough vaccines to cover 139% of the population. And it's split between different vaccines. But for these three vaccines in particular, we have on reserve 100 million doses of the Pfizer vaccine, 100 million doses of the Moderna vaccine, and 200 million doses of the AstraZeneca vaccine. These are all different vaccines. And basically in this podcast, I'm going to be talking about who's going to get these vaccines first, how do these vaccines work? what are the differences between these vaccines? And lastly, I'm going to try to talk a little bit about the studies, who is involved in these studies and answer some kind of common questions regarding these vaccines. So hopefully it's a little bit helpful just because it's an extremely important time. These vaccines really have the potential to revolutionize the way we're dealing with this pandemic. And the way that we actually develop these vaccines is particularly interesting as well. And so I think these vaccines really have a lot of promise and really developing how the next year, two years, and potentially farther in the future, how we combat viruses and in particular the COVID-19 pandemic. And so I think it's really important that we kind of talk about this and make sure everyone's roughly on the same page. And so I'll do my best to provide as much information as I can. So first I'm going to talk about who's going to get these vaccines first. And so lately we've been hearing a lot about these vaccines in the media and the news and things like that. And one of the most important things that we think about is how exactly are these limited first Few doses going to be kind of rolled out, and so there's different phases that the U.S. government plans on rolling these vaccines out, essentially. In and basically, the first phase and the first group that will most likely get the vaccine are going to be the individuals that were in the placebo group in the vaccine trials, and I think that's fair. That's just um, just because they were they basically potentially put themselves in harm's way and uh, were involved in research that's really going to be benefiting all of us. And so it makes a lot of sense that the people who thought they were going to get the vaccine potentially exposed themselves to dangerous conditions and really partook in this study that's going to be affecting all of us, that they really get the vaccine first. And I think that's important. But otherwise, the different phases that the vaccines are going to be pushed in are going to be phase 1A, phase 1B, phase 1C, and then phase 2. And so phase 1A or the first group of people who are going to be getting the vaccines generally include healthcare workers. So whether it's doctors, nurses, um, EMR personnel, um, really anyone who's considered a first responder or people working in the healthcare industry exposed to a lot of people who may potentially be carrying this virus are going to be getting the vaccine first. And in addition, in the phase 1A group, there are residents of long-term facilities and that includes older people who are in nursing homes and things of that sort. And so 21 million doses are expected to go to healthcare workers, and then 3 million doses are expected to go to residents of long-term facilities. And so after these doses get out to this phase 1A group, the phase 1B group will be getting their vaccines. And this group includes other essential workers, so whether it be including people in education like teachers, professors, um, people in police work, or um, correction officers, people in food agriculture, firefighters, it's a really broad group of workers, but essentially most of the people who are still working during the time of lockdown and things of that sort, whose jobs are extremely important, they get classified as an essential worker. And so that's going to be the phase 1B, um, people who are getting the vaccine essentially. And then phase 1C, the people getting them right after, are going to be adults with high risk conditions. Um, whether that be heart disease, diabetes, cancers, and then also um, adults that are aged 65 and above. And so this is going to be the next group of people and this group of people essentially would need the vaccine to protect them from the worst outcomes that are associated with some of these higher risk conditions and just elderly age in general. And then lastly, the phase two group is everyone else. And so after phase 1A, 1B, 1C are done, everyone else will be eligible essentially to get the vaccine. And hopefully this will be happening very quickly because we need this vaccine to get out as quickly as possible. And I think vaccinating some of these uh, essential workers, healthcare workers, people at high risk of severe illness is extremely important. And as soon as we get that done um, and we're able to get it to everyone else, we can start eliciting some of those benefits of herd immunity and things like that. And so now what I really wanna talk about is how do these vaccines work? And so all these three vaccines that I'm going to be talking about are different in many aspects. And so I'll start with the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccine. So both of these are mRNA vaccines. And what this really means is typically the vaccines of the past were vaccines that generally depended upon DNA as the gene holding mechanism for which we were trying to induce immunity. But in this case, we're using mRNA. And this is really the first time in history that we've tried to make an mRNA vaccine. And both of the two forefront vaccines that are currently trying to be spread across the U.S. are mRNA vaccines, Moderna and Pfizer. And so how this really works is we're trying to introduce mRNA, which holds the genetic information that encodes for the spike protein on the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And we're suspending that in proprietary lipid technology. So essentially, it's a bilipid membrane that is proprietary to each company. So Moderna and Pfizer both have their own specific lipid membrane technology. And this is kind of emulsifying and holding the mRNA and using it as a transport molecule, as well as an adjuvant to introduce into the body so that host ribonucleases and other molecules essentially aren't able to really attack and destroy this before it's ingested into a host cell. And these genes, Rather than like DNA being transported into the nucleus of cells and used throughout the rest of the host cell's machinery, it's actually just going to be containing the genes, which will be translated in the cytoplasm of the cell instead of the nucleus and using the host ribosomes to produce proteins. And these specific proteins are going to be the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein. And this protein is extremely important not only for virus binding but additionally, immune system recognition. So on the spike protein, there's receptor binding domains and other areas that the cells of our body will be able to recognize. And essentially, this will allow us to induce an immune response against this spike protein. And if we elicit an immune response against the spike protein, we're going to be able to essentially have some level of immunity and defense against this virus before it's ever really able to wreak any havoc or induce any damage. And once that cell is able to actually use this mRNA to produce the spike protein, it'll be able to present this to other immune cells. It'll be able to generate a memory among these immune cells, which will produce both antibodies as well as T cells. So both humoral and components of cell-mediated adaptive immunity, so that the next time that you're potentially infected with this virus, Able to see the spike protein and activate very quickly and attack the SARS CoV 2 virus, thus preventing any COVID 19 symptoms or COVID 19 disease. And I think. This is extremely important to kind of understand in terms of how these vaccines work and actually elicit an immune response. And now when we look at the AstraZeneca slash Oxford virus, this one is actually a live attenuated chimpanzee adenovirus. Thus, it's using DNA rather than mRNA to generate the spike protein. And the reason it's actually important that we're using a live attenuated chimpanzee adenovirus as the kind of uh, reservoir or transport mechanism to in, introduce this DNA for the spike protein is because we really want to be able to generate a novel immune response or a new immune response and thus if we're using a virus that we likely would have already encountered in our day-to-day lives we'll already have an immune response against it we'll already have pre-generated antibodies or memory cells and thus if we we're trying to introduce the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein genetic information in a cell that we've already encountered, then we're going to have an abuster immune response already developed. We're going to attack it and destroy it before we're actually able to generate that spike protein, which will kind of defeats the purpose of the vaccine. So in this case, we're using chimpanzee identifiers because we generally don't have an immune response against these chimpanzee identifiers already. And because we don't have these responses already, it's going to work very similarly to the mRNA vaccine in that... This live attenuated vaccine or adenovirus is going to be entering our body. We're going to be generating an immune response against it because we're going to our body is going to see this virus. It's going to uptake that DNA material, and instead of just using our host ribosomes to translate that immediately in the cytoplasm, it's going to be uptaken into the nucleus of cells. There, it'll generate the mRNA through transcription. Then it'll be translated to create the spike protein in the cytoplasm, and essentially. All this may sound complicated but essentially what we're trying to do is create a specific protein that our body will be able to recognize so that we can destroy this virus that's that's essentially what all these vaccines are trying to do. We're not actually introducing the virus into our body at all. So we're not there's no chance of you actually getting COVID-19 from this vaccine because we're not introducing SARS-CoV-2 into your body. We're not introducing the virus that causes the disease. We're just introducing small pieces of material that generates a specific part of the virus so that we can attack that part of the virus and thus we won't be able to get the disease. And one way that I thought that was pretty neat to kind of introduce this concept was rather than giving the entire virus into the body and, you know, trying to generate a response against it, it's like we're just giving the hands of the virus into the body and then we're recognizing those hands and so anytime we see those hands again, we're able to destroy the entire virus rather than actually having to deal with the whole virus itself. And I I think that's a helpful way to look at it just to kind of understand that there's no chance of you really getting this disease from, from this vaccine because we're not giving you the actual virus. We're just giving you pieces of the virus that you can recognize so that if you were to encounter the virus later in the future, you would already have an immune response against it. So I think that's kind of helpful to understand. And then so now when we have all of these different immune responses, With all three of these vaccines, we're going to be generating neutralizing antibodies against the spike protein, against the receptor binding domain, and other locations on the spike protein. And this is important to understand because regardless if the virus is able to kind of mutate throughout its journey, we're still going to be having antibodies on different parts of that spike protein. So if there were small mutations to occur against the receptor binding domain, for instance, we're still going to be able to generate a relatively robust immune response against this virus. So, it would have to have a whole lot of genetic mutations to where none of the antibodies and none of the T cells and adaptive immune responses we've generated really are able to recognize this virus at all. And so, SARS CoV 2 in particular does mutate relatively quickly. And so, one of the questions we're trying to answer is, With this study, are we really able to determine whether we'll have long-lasting immunity to this virus? And that's important because throughout time, viruses are able to adapt, able to mutate so that we're not really able to recognize them anymore. And they're still able to infect us regardless of the immune responses we've developed. And although we don't know for sure, um, just kind of based on this principle, you can understand that to an extent we'll have some level of immunity against even mutated versions of this virus. But if there are large scale macro genetic shifts and drifts that push this virus into an entirely completely different looking virus, then we likely won't have any kind of immune response against it. But that'll likely take some amount of time. And so that's just one thing to kind of consider and, and think about with, um, in regards to long-term immunity based on this vaccine. So now I kind of want to talk a little bit about the differences between the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccine. So I already kind of mentioned that they're both mRNA vaccines. And it's important to kind of understand why are these different at all, right? And so while we don't know all the necessary uh, particular details between these different viruses which make them different, we do know that they have different nucleoside analogs, they have different lipid emulsion technologies, and there's different... In the studies that they actually tested these vaccines on, there were different groups that were tested. There were different amounts of the dose that were given. And so these vaccines are fairly different, although they do produce fairly similar, similar results as well. But one of the things I do want to talk about that makes them pretty different is that they have different storage capacities. And what I really mean by that is based on the stability of these vaccines, the Moderna vaccine actually requires much less strict temperature regulation as opposed to the Pfizer vaccine, which really requires very strict temperature regulation. And I'll get into that in a little bit. But so with these vaccines in general, when you get the dose of the vaccine, you actually need two doses. And so you're gonna get one dose, and roughly 28 days or about a month later, you're gonna need that second dose. And it takes about five to 15 days for antibodies and your adaptive immune system to really generate some kind of response. And so, even if you were to get the vaccine today, you can still be infected shortly after receiving the vaccine. And so that's something that's important to understand for people who get the vaccine and suddenly think they're immune or invincible. You really still have to be careful for quite a while. And even after 14 days, that doesn't necessarily mean you're not, there's no chance of you getting the, the virus. And so just shortly after getting the vaccine, it's gonna take a while for you to actually be able to generate an immune response. And it works like that for any vaccine, even with the flu vaccine, just because you got it today, doesn't mean you're not gonna get the flu tomorrow. You still have to take a while to generate that immune response and be able to have some level of defense against the virus. It doesn't happen immediately. And so that's important to kind of consider. And another thing that's pretty interesting is in a lot of different vaccines, they generally include things known as adjuvants, which kind of just help present some of these materials to your body to help in the process of generating an immune response. But one of the unique things about the mRNA vaccine is that there's no adjuvants actually added to it because the proprietary lipid emulsification kind of technology, it itself it supposedly acts as an adjuvant. It sort of helps present the mRNA vaccine and helps your body generate an immune response. And I think that's really novel and really unique thing about these mRNA vaccines. And so now I'll talk a little bit more about how effective actually are these vaccines. And so when we look at Moderna and Pfizer vaccine, both of them, they generally don't decrease the risk of infection, but instead they decrease the risk of illness or disease. And what I mean by that is getting these vaccines doesn't decrease the risk that someone that has SARS-CoV-2 is going to sneeze on you and you're going to have that SARS-CoV-2 in your body. It doesn't decrease the risk that the SARS-CoV-2 will get into your body in any way, but what it does decrease is the chance of the virus actually being able to replicate inside of your body and create symptoms that are diagnostic or representative of disease. So it'll decrease the risk of you getting COVID-19, but not necessarily the risk of you getting SARS-CoV-2, if that makes sense. And that's what these studies really looked at. So I'll talk about it a little bit later, but one of the big differences between the Moderna and Pfizer studies versus the AstraZeneca study was in the Moderna and Pfizer studies, they didn't check to see whether you actually got the virus. They weren't doing nasal swabs or COVID tests to see if you had the virus. Instead, they were seeing... to whether you developed any disease, whereas the AstraZeneca trial, they actually did swabs and they were checking to see if it, if the vaccine actually reduced your chance of getting the virus itself, which is a pretty important thing to kind of consider. In addition, in regards to COVID-19 and some of the things that we're looking at with these trials, there are different ways that COVID-19 can present in the body in terms of severity, mainly. And so when you think about the spectrum of COVID-19, you can either be healthy and asymptomatic, but still technically have disease. You can be mildly or moderately symptomatic and you can have severe disease. And of course, this is a spectrum. There's lots of in-betweens, but this is a helpful way to kind of think about it. And so when we think about these studies, let's talk about the Moderna study first. So the Moderna study studied 30,000 participants. About half received the placebo and about half received the vaccine. And so the way the Moderna study was structured was on the first day or day one, they received their first dose of the vaccine. And then their second dose wasn't given until day 29. So they waited 28 days exactly to give the second dose of the vaccine. And their study in particular looked at 11,000 communities of color 7,000 individuals aged 65 plus, and 5,000 people with comorbidities. And this is all important to kind of consider because ultimately with all of these trials, we want to make sure they're big enough so that the results that we obtain are statistically significant or they have meaning in some sense. But additionally, we want to make sure that they're representative of the population and they're really representative of who's going to be taking it. Because if this was a study of 30,000 participants and it was very Homogeneous in distribution, or in other words, those all white males, for instance, then if you're a female or, or if you're a person of color, you're not gonna really know whether this vaccine was effective for you because it wasn't tested on someone that's similar to you and has similar other health factors that are more relatable to you. And so this study was pretty well heterogeneous in the sense that there's a lot of people with comorbidities, a lot of different people of communities of color, different age groups and things of that sort. In terms of the vaccine itself, It was submitted for approval in terms of the study results on November 30th. And on December 17th, there's going to be a meeting for approval. And so this is a relatively shorter turnaround time compared to the Pfizer vaccine, which I'll talk about next. And so roughly two weeks after they submitted their data to the FDA, we're going to have some kind of meeting to determine whether it'll be available for approval. And as soon as it is approved, we'll be able to kind of start rolling this out to people to actually get vaccinated in terms of the results of the study, there were only 11 cases of COVID positivity in the vaccinated group, which is a 94% efficacy rate, compared to the placebo COVID positive cases, which were 185 cases, which means that in the people who got COVID positive disease, 94% of them were in the placebo group. And thus, the results of this study show that this Vaccine is 94% effective in reducing the relative risk of getting COVID 19, given that you got the vaccine. So, hopefully, that makes sense. It doesn't necessarily mean that if you get the vaccine and we directly expose you to SARS CoV 2, there's a 94% chance you're not going to get it. That's not how this works because essentially, what they did in the study were they gave two groups either a vaccine or a placebo and they just kind of let them go about their daily lives. They didn't directly expose them to the virus. And so given that you just generally go about your daily life, you're 94% less likely to get the disease if you have the vaccine versus having the placebo. So that's kind of how it worked. And then when we look at other really interesting parts about this, one of the things that really jumps out is that in the group that was vaccinated, there were absolutely zero cases of severe COVID disease. And so the people who did test COVID positive or did have COVID disease, none of them had severe disease. They only had mild to moderate symptoms, which means that this vaccine was 100% effective in preventing like hospitalizations, death, and really severe disease, which is extremely, extremely important because that's ultimately what we want. If you were to just get mild symptoms, you were to get fever, headache, and and things like that, that's bearable. But what we're really trying to do is make sure no one's getting seriously ill, hospitalized, or dying. And this vaccine was 100% effective in this study in particular. And in the placebo group, there were actually 30 people who had severe disease. And so this is important to kind of consider. 16% of the placebo group had severe disease. Um, The rest just had mild to moderate symptoms, but no one in the vaccinated group had severe disease. And so this is important to consider in the Moderna vaccine group. And when we look at the Pfizer trial, That study had 43,000 participants. About half received the placebo and half received the vaccine. So right off the bat, this study is a little bit bigger, 30,000 versus 43,000. The way they received their doses were on day one, they received their first dose. And on day 21, they received their second dose. So instead of waiting for four weeks, they waited for three weeks to get the second dose. And this group, this was also a relatively heterogeneous study sample And so all 43,000 of the participants were 16 years or older. And so this specific study didn't include pregnant women or children under the age of 16, although this study will eventually release those results. But so this study in particular just had 43,000 participants 16 years or older. It was mainly done in the US, but there were a few international sites as well. About 49% of the population was female. 83% of the population was white. 9% of the population study was black. 28% were Hispanic, and so some of the white co-identified as Hispanic. 4% of the population were Asian. 35% of the population was obese. The median age of the population study was 52 years old, and 42% of the population study were older than 55. And so again, this is a pretty heterogeneous sample. Of course, there were quite a few more white individuals than other races. And it's pretty well encompassing of different age ranges and things of that sort. It's a good split between female and male. And the results of this study were pretty interesting. Of the people in the study who were COVID positive after being tested, only about eight of them were in the vaccinated group. And 162 of them were in the placebo group. And so compared to the Moderna trial, very similar efficacy results, about 95%. Just kind of explaining that, if you were to get the vaccine and just go about your daily life, the relative risk reduction of getting the disease is about 95%, which is very similar to the Moderna trial, which was 94%. And the severity is more interesting in this case. And so there were only 10 individuals who had severe disease. So nine of them were in the placebo group, and one of them was actually in the vaccinated group. And so in this case, the probability of reducing the risk of severe disease is not 100% in this case like it was in Moderna. And so in this case, 12.5% of the individuals who were vaccinated and got disease actually had severe disease, which is not ideal generally in when you're trying to look at this because, again, like, I'm, like I said before, getting the disease is obviously something we're trying to avoid, but as long as you only have mild symptoms, then that's something that's we're okay to kind of deal with. But people who still end up having this severe disease is very important. Of course, this person is, who had the severe disease did not die, but again, he did have very severe symptoms, which ultimately I believe ended up requiring hospitalization. And so now what I want to talk about is some of the other differences between these vaccines. And so with the Moderna vaccine, the storage requirements for it are only that it has to be stored at negative four degrees Fahrenheit at negative, or in other words, negative 20 degrees Celsius, whereas the Pfizer vaccine has to be stored at negative 94 degrees Fahrenheit or negative 70 degrees Celsius. And even when it's stored with within these conditions, it's has to kind of thaw in regular refrigerated requirements. And when it's in a regular refrigerator, it has to be used within three days. And Pfizer actually applied for approval on November 9th. And the meeting for approval was December 10th and it was actually approved on December 11th. And so we actually have this vaccine approved across the United States. It's currently being shipped to a lot of different hospitals and it, The first doses of the vaccine should be given very shortly, actually within the next few days, um, ideally. And the availability of these vaccines is also something that's very important to consider. And so there should be about 20 million doses by the end of 2020 for Moderna and 50 million doses for the Pfizer vaccine by the end of 2020. And for the Moderna vaccine, there should be 500 million to 1 billion doses available in 2021, whereas for the Pfizer vaccine, there should be upwards of 1.3 billion doses in 2021. So as you can see here, the Pfizer vaccine is going to be quite a bit more available, generally speaking, within the U.S. and at a roughly, relatively quicker timeline as well. And so that's something that's also very important to consider. And the refrigeration requirements for these vaccines are, it's important to talk about because It requires a lot of difficulties in logistics and really a lot of difficulties in terms of the way hospitals are actually going to to be able to store and transport and use these vaccines because it's not like they can just get the vaccines, use them whenever they want. It's really, there has to be something known as the cold chain, which needs to be developed, which is essentially from the factory where these vaccines are being developed. There has to be a necessary really great infrastructure developed to where we can get these vaccines not only quickly, but across the entire country to really small communities, really large communities, while still keeping all these very stringent temperature requirements. And so one thing that's really unique about the AstraZeneca virus is it doesn't require this complex cold chain. It can be stored at refrigerable temperatures, so just around 40 degrees Fahrenheit. But I'll talk more about that vaccine in just a little bit. So now I want to answer a pretty common question, and I read into detail in terms of the Pfizer trial. All the study results were released, and so I was trying to kind of see whether I could answer the question of, is this vaccine dangerous at all, right? In terms of the Pfizer trial, the vaccine group reported pain at the site of injection as their most common side effect. About 70 to 80 percent of people actually Reported pain in that site versus just 10% of the placebo group. And so, one of the things that's important to kind of notice about this is although these people don't necessarily know that they're much more likely to receive pain in that arm unless they really have a medical background, that could have influenced their actions and decisions a little bit if they did know that they had actually received the dose based on having the side effect of pain. But there is a pretty significant difference in terms of pain between the placebo and the vaccine group in the site of injection. Other side effects, especially systemic ones, were pretty common as well. So about 50 to 60% of people who received the vaccination reported fatigue and headache, whereas only 20% of people did in the placebo group. And about 1% of these were actually very severe fatigue or headache, as opposed to the rest just being mild or moderate. About 15% of participants actually noticed a fever, and the adverse event rate in the vaccine group was 27% versus just 12% in the placebo group. And some other adverse events included about 0.3% of people in the vaccine group, or 64 people, developed lymphadenopathy compared to just six people in the placebo group. There were Actually, two deaths in the vaccine group compared to four deaths in the placebo group, but all of these were determined to be unrelated to the vaccine at all and just related to other common things that occur in the background in a normal population, like cardiac arrest and things of that sort. There were eight COVID cases at least seven days after the second dose in the vaccine group versus 162 in the placebo group, like I mentioned before, so 95% efficacy. And the reason I mentioned the at least seven days is, again, this is another difference between the Moderna and the Pfizer trial. The Pfizer trial is only starting to pick up COVID cases seven days after the second dose, whereas the Moderna trial was picking them up 14 days after the second dose. And so all the people who got COVID between the first and second dose or shortly after the second dose were not counted in this. And that makes sense because it takes time to develop an actual immune response against the disease. And so they only really wanted to see the the only real way to measure the efficacy of the vaccine is to kind of give it some time to develop that immune response. In terms of the subgroup efficacy, which I think is extremely important and really neat to look at, there was an overall 95% efficacy, like I mentioned, but there was a subgroup efficacy of 96% in the 16 to 55 year age group, 94% in people above 55 years of age but less than 75 years of age and 100% in the group above 75 years of age. So this is extremely important if you're above 75 years old. The as far as the study results go, there was a 100% chance of preventing the disease in this population. And when we look at other subgroups, it was 96% effective in males, 94% effective in females. effective in whites, actually 100% effective in blacks. And so again, not a single African-American or black person in this trial got COVID if they were vaccinated. And I think that's something extremely important. This vaccine in particular is being tested on a wide array of individuals, not just white individuals. And it is extremely effective. And so case in point also, it was 94% effective in Hispanic population as well. And so some of the limitations of this study include that It didn't have any results on adolescents or people younger than the age of 16, so no pediatric patients really in this trial, at least that were reported yet, although they do plan on reporting both on pediatric patients as well as pregnant women, which will be very important to have those results on. In addition, there's no long-term safety data, just kind of with the rate at which we wanted these results and we were able to kind of do this study. Naturally, we're not going to really know any long-term effects of this vaccine. So we're not going to know long-term efficacy and some of the things I talked about before, like will this virus actually be able to mutate it all and will the antibody titers and immunity that we develop wane over time? Will we actually develop long-term side effects way later on? These things aren't likely, but we don't know that just based on this trial itself. And so now I kind of want to talk a little bit about the AstraZeneca trial. So this study was quite a bit smaller than the Moderna and Pfizer trials. It included 9,000 participants in Brazil, 3,000 in the UK. And this was a really unique trial. So essentially what I understood was there was kind of some kind of error in terms of administrating this vaccine to these two groups. And so the people in Brazil they received a full dose on day one, and then 28 days later, they received a second full dose. And during this period of the study, the vaccine was only 62% effective. However, in the UK, for whatever reason, it seems like they some kind of error was made, or maybe they intentionally only gave half the dose initially, and then 28 days later, they gave the full dose. And in this trial, the vaccine was shown to be 90% effective. And so quite a big jump. And so this is extremely unique in that the total efficacy of this was only roughly in the 70% if you account for 62% and 90% effective in these two separate trials. But when we're using half the dose and then give another full dose later, it was much more effective. And so that's extremely important to kind of consider whether this will be much more effective if... It is given by the protocol of half a dose and then one dose later. Why is this the case? Why is giving half the dose first and then a full dose later more effective than just giving two full doses? Um, We'll actually be able to save on a lot of doses and be able to give more doses if we only need to give half at first. We'll be able to essentially increase the amount of doses we're able to give by 25%. And so these are all important things to kind of look at and consider. Um, And in addition, one other thing I want to mention is that Instead of after 7 to 14 days checking to start seeing if they develop disease, they actually swapped participants to check for infection rather than just the disease. There haven't been any results in the USA yet. Both of these were conducted in Brazil and the UK. But this is still an extremely important vaccine to consider. And one of the main reasons for that is, one, the doses are much cheaper. So the doses of the AstraZeneca virus are projected to only cost about 3 to $5 per dose, as opposed to more than $20 per dose for both the Moderna and Pfizer vaccine. And that's because AstraZeneca is saying that they're not trying to or want to make any profit on this vaccine. Their goal is really to get it to as many people as possible for as low of a cost as possible. In addition, there's no strict storage requirements for this vaccine it only needs to be stored between 36 to 46 degrees Fahrenheit or two to eight degrees Celsius, which is basically just regular refrigeration temperatures. And at these temperatures, it's able to last for months. And so this is really important to consider as well. So we don't need to develop that robust cold chain. We don't need to thaw and use these extremely quickly once they're received at hospitals. Um, Rather, they can be used like traditional vaccines for the most part. But again, the they're not as effective. They're a little bit more difficult to produce in mass quantities because mRNA generally is one of the really good great benefits of having an mRNA vaccine. Is it's a lot easier to produce those small mRNA particles rather than culture entire DNA um, vesicles and use them in these chimpanzee adenovirus reservoirs. And additionally, there's going to be a lot more doses available. And so, as opposed to roughly one billion for Moderna, one point three billion for Pfizer. AstraZeneca is trying to produce upwards of 4.5 billion doses, and this is something that's huge because this is going to go all over the world. And so whereas Moderna and Pfizer are trying to get their vaccine to many different countries, a lot of the doses will be concentrated in the Western world, whereas AstraZeneca is really trying to get this out to all over the world, to Africa, India, and other areas that don't necessarily aren't necessarily going to be getting the doses required and really it's important that we get everyone this vaccine and not just keep it here if we really want to make sure that we get rid of this virus once and for all. Another important thing to look at in regards to the study from the AstraZeneca trial where there were no severe COVID cases in this group as well. So similar to the Moderna trial, no severe COVID cases and I think that's very important. So now I kind of want to try to answer some questions that I had people have asked me and that a little bit confusing regarding the whole vaccination story. And so for one something I touched on a little bit earlier, can you get covid because of the vaccine? No. None of the vaccines are actually SARS-CoV-2. They're not weakened or attenuated SARS-CoV-2 virus. They're actually just specific proteins from the virus or other attenuated viruses. And the side effects from the vaccines are not that you're actually getting a weaker version of the disease or anything like that. When you experience pain at the injection site or fever, headache, chills, things like that, that's not because you're getting the infection or a mild version of the infection. It's just your body having or developing a very robust immune response and inflammation developing in other areas of your body, really reacting to and developing that immune immunity to this virus that's creating those symptoms or side effects. And so you're not getting the virus itself. And so that's nothing you need to be worried about. You know, you can't get COVID from this vaccine. You can still get COVID from another individual who has the virus, but you can't get it from the vaccine itself. Another thing I want to talk about is there are no long-term side effects that are known from this vaccine. And So people are worried about what if I get this vaccine and we haven't studied it for a long time and what's going to happen way later down the road, most likely nothing based on the fact that we've been receiving vaccines our whole lives and of course these are different in the sense that they're mRNA um, two of them and that's a new technology we haven't really developed but more than likely there's not going to be any significant long-term side effects just the short-term ones like fever muscle and joint pains headaches fatigue things of that sort and those are fairly common so that is something you want to think about Will you actually need to be getting this vaccine every year? Uh, Potentially. We don't know, again. We don't know how long the immunity will last. We don't know how high of an antibody titer we're going to get from this vaccine. We don't know exactly if this virus were to actually mutate at all, whether we would still have some level of immunity against it. Most likely we would, but these are all, again, projections. We don't have scientific evidence to say for sure what will happen way later down the road. And so I think that's something that's also important to consider. Another question is why do we need two doses? And so one high dose initially will have a lot more side effects. It'll have much more inflammation, a higher chance of serious allergic reactions and et cetera. And so these immune responses, they take time and thus splitting the dose into two smaller doses, it'll have less side effects and you'll be able to generate a more robust immune response. And usually we're gonna wait at least 14, but usually at least uh, 28 days to kind of give the second dose just to kind of ensure that you have an adequate time to build that adaptive immune response and trigger that memory so that the second dose can be given to further kind of train and hone that immune response. Additionally, can you take one vaccine from one company and another from another company? And so that is a good question. It's something generally speaking, we probably shouldn't because we're not going to have study results claiming the efficacy for that. And so even though the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines are both mRNA vaccines, they are different. And so we don't know that if you take the Moderna first, for instance, and then 21 or 28 days later, you take the Pfizer, whether that'll have the same efficacy, whether you will have the same side effects, we don't know exactly. And so while it will be difficult, oftentimes if you're traveling and certain parts of the country only give one vaccine, other parts only give the other, we don't necessarily know whether having one dose and then the second dose will make much of a difference. And so it's better to just kind of get both doses from one company. If you get both doses from one company, you, you're not going to need vaccination from the other company. That most likely won't give you any better of an immune response. And so just, just getting vaccinated once is going to be your best bet, especially if it's from the same company and you receive both doses of that vaccine. Also, if you've already recovered, will it be beneficial for you to get vaccinated? The answer is most likely yes, but you shouldn't really try to get vaccinated. And what I mean by that is in the beginning, there's going to be very limited doses of the vaccine. And if you've already recovered from the virus, you most likely have a very developed immune response already. And so while once we get the cost of the vaccine down and well distributed, there's no real harm to getting the vaccine. There's no real point to it either. And you're Potentially going to be keeping other people from getting the vaccine who don't have an immunity already. And so, at least in the initial rollout, it's much more beneficial for someone who doesn't have any immunity or exposure to the virus to get the vaccine rather than someone who's already recovered and trying to get the vaccine. And so, most likely, it's best if you don't get the vaccine if you've already had a known infection and known recovery, just because you'll already have some level of immunity. Although eventually later on, you can probably still get the vaccine. You're not gonna have any particularly severe side effects, again, most likely. Is the vaccine safe? So yes, in general, it is safe. It's not absolutely safe, but we're talking about relative safety. And that ultimately comes down to a risk-benefit ratio. And so yes, getting the vaccine, there may be adverse effects that we don't know. Because the study was only 30,000 people or 43,000 people, that's not a big enough sample size to really know the rate of having really severe, but very, very uncommon adverse effects. And so one example is in the flu vaccine, there's a one in one million chance that you can get Guillain-Barre syndrome. There weren't one million people in this study. And so we don't know the chance that you can get something very rare like that with this COVID-19 vaccine, but it is very unlikely. And so, although it's not absolutely safe, the risk benefit ratio of getting this vaccine is very good because the benefit that you're gonna get from this vaccine is much, much higher than the risk of getting very severe, very adverse effects. And so I think it is safe and it is important that you think about these things when you're trying to make the decision. Do we think that this vaccine will ever be mandated? Will it be optional? So there's mo- it's most likely not going to be a government mandate for you to get this vaccine. One, because we don't have enough doses and we already have high enough demand for us to really satisfy that initial supply that we'll have. And so there likely won't be any benefit to kind of getting any kind of specific mandate. But in addition, there are potential side effects. And so it's hard to kind of mandate this vaccine, especially in populations that we don't have studies yet, like on pregnant women and children and things of that sort. And so there likely won't be any specific mandate that you have to get this vaccine, but it will be beneficial for most people. In addition, what's the rough timeline that this vaccine will be rolled out? And so I think phase one, which I talked about earlier, will most likely be done by spring to early summer. And so most of the essential healthcare workers and essential workers and people in retirement communities and things of that sort will most likely have their doses by by summertime. And I think after that, and even potentially before that, everyone else will really be able to start getting vaccinated. Hopefully we'll be able to increase production at a speed that is really able to meet the demand of our country and worldwide. And hopefully we can start really not having to worry about this disease potentially by early fall, late fall, next year, and it'll be not too much of an issue by then so thank you all so much for listening hopefully this provided some useful information some value in some way i know it's a pretty long podcast and i talked about a lot of different things but my goal was really for people to kind of understand a little bit more about the vaccine and if there's if anyone has any questions feel free to reach out to me comment um, i'll be more than happy to try to do some research and figure this out i'm no expert but i've tried to at least learn a little bit more about the topic just so i can speak to you all about it and Thank you so, so much for listening. You could have been doing anything in the world, and I really appreciate you spending some time listening to my podcast and listening to me. Hope you all have a great rest of your day. Thank you so, so much.